This is the Feminine Genius Podcast, a podcast that celebrates all women of God and their unique genius. I'm your host, Rachel Wong. During her time as a campus missionary, Nicole Amalu found herself journeying with students who struggled with their mental health and helped them in their journey of healing. These experiences, as well as her own journey, led her to start The Face of Mercy, a nonprofit organization that aims to help provide mental health advocacy and education in the church. In this episode, Nicole and I talk about the experiences that helped her to see this very critical need, how the Face of Mercy carries out this mission, and what we as a church can do to support others struggling with their mental health. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Rachel. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. And like I've mentioned, it's good to finally meet you kind of as face-to-face as possible because I've been following along with the Face of Mercy and I was just so excited. And I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but I just wanted to say thank you for what you're doing for the church and also thank you for being here. I appreciate it. It's a joy to get to do something that I'm so passionate about and bring to the church something that I think is so needed in helping her become who she's meant to be. Mm, Amen. So for those who haven't had the privilege to meet you yet, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself and share a little bit about what you do right now. Yeah, I'm Nicole Amalu. I currently live in Virginia, just outside DC. And I am the founder and director of The Face of Mercy, a nonprofit dedicated to mental health education and advocacy in the church. That's so wonderful. And I think as listeners of the show will know, like mental health and mental illness, those are things that are deeply rooted into my own story. And I'm a huge fan and advocate for anyone who is doing this kind of work. So again, thank you. And maybe just as we start off, you could share a little bit of your own faith journey and just how it is that you've come to know Christ. Absolutely. There isn't really any one big moment. So I was raised in a very Catholic family. The parish was like a huge part, not just of like our week going on Sunday, but just our day-to-day life. We were there more days than not. And it was just a really gift, a gift to grow up that way. And one of the things that really stands out as a child was how enthralled I was with the lives of the saints. So we had bookcase full of their stories and they really were like my superheroes growing up. And I think it was really just internalized very young that I was meant to be a saint. I was called Mm -hmm. to be holy. And I think that was such a gift, even as like, I kind of went back and forth at different points. I think I was always like fervent and passionate about my faith. But I think that that kind of seed that was planted was always like kind of growing. I would really say I like stumbled into a relationship with Christ. For all that my family was Catholic, I think that they kind of missed that part that it's about a relationship with Christ. And I found myself just... I think it just started randomly at mass one Sunday where like I had this moment in prayer where it was realizing that Jesus was a person who was there in the tabernacle Mm -hmm. and wanted to talk to me. And yeah, so through my like high school years with different retreat experiences and adoration and good faithful friends Mm -hmm. that I think kind of grew that aspect of my faith of knowing that God loved me and created me and wanted me to know him and be in relationship with him. Yeah, it just kind of grew and became something that was very important to me and directed a lot of my life from there. And I'm curious too, like this might be a very difficult question to answer, but do you have a one favorite saint or is it like a whole squad that you kind of bring to the table or bring with you everywhere you go? There are a few that stand out. So St. Joseph has been instrumental in my life since I was a mm-hmm. child. So my dad actually died young and... Mm-hmm. 
when I was still a kid from the lives of the saints, I kind of was like, St. Joseph, you're going to step in. And I prayed it in like a child, childlike moment of faith. And then it kind of drifted to the back of my mind, but he's come up at very key points in my discernment of vocation. When I met my now husband, where you can kind of see how he's had a hand of protection over me all that time, even when I forgot. So he's a big one, John Paul II and Mother Teresa. Mm, oh, Excellent. I mean, all saints are so wonderful, but you've picked three very heavy hitters. And I mean, we're recording this. We just closed the year of St. Joseph. So I can only imagine just what joy that must have been to hear that announcement and then to have a whole year of St. Joseph. Yes, absolutely. It's been really beautiful. And, you know, you touch on this beautiful desire, right, that all of us are called to be holy. And I know that I I shared with you briefly that one of the things that I really struggled with in my own journey was, you know, kind of that parallel of knowing in in my head and maybe to some point in my heart that I was called to be holy, but then having the weights of different mental illness and mental uh, health struggles to deal with. And I know that in some conversations that I've had with people within the Catholic Church about these issues, it can be very hard to feel like when we're suffering that we have that same call as maybe other people in our midst do. So this might be a roundabout way of asking, but prior to you starting The Face of Mercy, I was wondering if you could share a little bit of your own personal tie to mental health and perhaps kind of giving some insight as to how the journey started and then how that led to The Face of Mercy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's very tied in with my own faith story. Because I think in my young adult years, early college, I really ran into the fact that I started hitting blocks because of trauma and mental illness in my prayer life and really receiving God's love and then just making the progress and growing in holiness in the way I wanted to. And I think some of my grappling with mental illness and my faith life has been that holiness won't always look like what I want it to. God is much more kind and merciful to me than I am in that he's not asking me to become a cookie cutter saint that looks pious all the time in the way that I've maybe envisioned it at times, but that it has to do with the very real landscape of my life, which includes anxiety and depression. And so he's taking that into account. He's merciful there. So when I was in college, I did therapy briefly. When I joined, I did join Focus after college as a missionary, the Fellowship of Catholic University students, for anyone who's not familiar. And that just brought out a lot of my anxiety and insecurities in the first Mm -hmm. year. And I was talking to a priest about it and he encouraged me to go to therapy. And he's like, it seems like there's some wounds underneath this. And so that really started my like getting diagnosed with mental illness for the first time and kind of understanding this internal struggle that I didn't realize was more than maybe people are usually experiencing. It was really helpful. I'm doing it in missionary life where there's so much prayer and community and I had really supportive teammates. And so I was getting to see you know, Christ's love incarnate in those people as I was doing therapy. But I often felt like this was so important to my prayer life. This is so important to my relationship with Christ, but it often seemed so separate from my work as a missionary. Mm-hmm. Whenever I went to talks, whenever I went to conferences, like no one ever talked about mental illness or mental health. And so I was seeing this big divide of like, well, I'm struggling with it. And then the more my students were open, I'm like, well, they're struggling with it. Why are we not talking about the fact that these things affect each other? I think in my case, it was a lot of those things I was mentioning where like blocks to receiving love or anxiety and prayer were kind of impeding what I wanted to do and how I wanted to grow closer to Christ. And so wanting to be able to talk about that with others and kind of work through it in community. I was very blessed with the people that I had around me, but then I think I was seeing in the larger church, like we didn't have this. This isn't the norm. 
We don't always have people who are willing to talk about mental health openly in the church. And when you do, there's often a lot of stigma. People in the church are not necessarily familiar with this as much as the culture is and ready to talk about it and be open. Yeah. And you mentioned going to your priest, right? And talking about that. Because I held my breath for a second. I have to be honest. I held my breath and I was like, oh, what, what is she going to say that he said to her? And I'm so thankful to hear that he encouraged you to go and seek out whether it's like a counselor or therapy and not bring up some of the stigma or maybe the classic answer that sometimes we hear, which is, you know, you just need to pray more or you can pray it away or spend more time in the chapel. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've heard that so many other times, but I think that particular conversation and this priest I randomly picked to go to, you know, the Holy Spirit must've been working to encourage him to point me in the right direction of what I needed. And I love that you have that opportunity through Focus to work with different university students. And, you know, I'm here in Canada and similarly, we have a program called Catholic Christian Outreach. So kind of like the Canadian version of Focus. And I think in having those conversations with different missionaries as well, I was able to maybe have something reflected back to me where there were deeper issues at play. So I think, you know, for yourself, being a missionary, being able to journey with other students and of course, like being a university student, as I'm sure maybe many of us can attest to, is it's not exactly a walk in the park sometimes. It's a very stressful time in our lives. And like you said, maybe it reflected back to you that maybe there was something going on or deeper at play that is not the usual norm. And I was just curious to hear maybe from your perspective, during your time as a missionary, what were some of the things that really stood out to you that kind of maybe push you to dig in deeper to have those conversations and and perhaps like pave the way to starting a nonprofit? Yeah. So a few things stand out. So one was a conversation with a student. So one of the students I mentored came to me and she was really concerned about another friend. And so she asked me to talk to her and she was a fallen away Catholic who was not, not living the church's teachings anymore, but she was also racked with guilt. So she had an anxiety disorder and then was making this this choice against the Catholic lifestyle that made her feel guilty. And those things were like crushing her. And so we had this conversation and I just over and over as I was talking, what kept coming to mind is like, Jesus loves you where you are. Like he gets why you're here because she was almost waiting for like lightning to come strike her. Like her anxiety just had her so braced for God's wrath. And as I heard parts of her story, it sounds like a lot of the way her parents imparted the faith was a lot of fear, a lot of fear of hell that, you know, was overemphasized maybe so that that was all she saw of God's character. And in that conversation, it was just this like, okay, this might be the only time I get to talk to you. Like, I just want you to know that like God loves you and he is ready to meet you when you're ready, but he's not going to just kill you for walking away from the church. Like it was not going to be this, I'm going to smite you kind of reaction. And I was thinking like, so she had a therapist, but not one who was familiar with the church or the faith. And not someone who could help her navigate that kind of what's healthy guilt, what's anxiety, how do these things interact and play on each other? How can you make choices freely? Because God gave us free will. He doesn't want us, well, he wants us to choose the good. He also wants us to do that, not out of fear, but out of freedom. And so I just walked away from that conversation with my heart breaking for her and kind of how she had been given the faith in such a kind of broken way and how much anxiety she was living with. And so I think that was probably the moment where like the seeds started planting. I had already been interested in psychology. That's what I had studied in undergrad. But this idea of like, oh, I want to do something so the church is better at navigating this intersection. So from a different angle than like a therapist helping people individually, but that place of like, okay, how can we as a church better pass on our teachings so that we're not imparting anxiety unnecessarily, make sure parents know how to teach their children 
And then a second key point was I had a really unusual Bible study in my last year as a missionary. Almost all of the girls lived with pretty significant mental illness. And it was also the best community small group I've ever had. So they all lived in the same dorm. And it was a really difficult year for my mental health as well. I just moved to Boston for that mission. That move kind of brought up a lot of my own trauma and struggles. These women like welcomed me in. They were the friends that I needed that year, probably more than they needed me. And so in that small group, we'd start always talking about highs, lows, and God moments of the week. And their highs and lows usually had to do with, you know, how depressed they had been. Or one of them was sharing memories of like when she was in a mental hospital, when she was more severely depressed and, you know, and it gave me the opportunity to be very open about what my struggles were. Then we would dive into Bible study and like there was this freedom to continue talking about the very real landscape of our lives. But also I think I was really touched by the fact that they didn't see that as taking away from my ability to teach them about Christ. And I was kind of braced for that from some of the ways that my mental illness had been handled in focus. I was waiting for them to like not take me as seriously or like, oh, you don't have your stuff together. But I think more than that, they actually were open and listening and sharing because, because of how open we were about what was going on. And then these women just had very good human virtue. So it was a very mixed group of semi-Catholic, fallen away Catholics, one agnostic, one who was converting to Judaism at the time. So just this huge mix of faith life and background. And there was actually some really beautiful conversions that happened throughout the year, which was really awesome to be a part of. But I think what struck me was how much good human virtue they had built because of their mental illness struggles, that they'd really learned how to love each other and show up and be compassionate and empathetic. And I often felt like when they came to the larger Catholic community events, that people didn't necessarily receive them. They didn't fit in well with this like Catholic community. And I was always like, oh, but everyone else is missing out. There's something they have to offer from their struggles and the shape of their lives that the church needs the church on our campus, but just the church as a whole. It really struck me that like as a church, we often kind of see people with mental illness in this place over there. And even when churches do have outreach, it tends to be like a support group for people with mental illness, mm-hmm. kind of separate from the parish, instead of being ready to welcome people into the whole community and being like, no, we're all here. Our struggles might look different, but we're all following Christ together and we all have something to offer. So yeah, those were like two really key moments with students that really struck me and led me to want to start the Pace of Mercy. Yeah. And thank you for sharing those stories. I mean, it's it's so evident that the spirit has moved through, you know, not only your own life, but of course, like these experiences that you've had. And so let's talk about and dive into the face of mercy. When was it that you started it? And on a related note, though, I can see how this might come into play, but you know, choosing that word mercy, but then also giving it a human face, which we know is our Lord. But yeah, I'd love to hear the inspiration behind the name and and just how it got started. Yes, absolutely. So I actually got the name a little while before I started it. So I was definitely dragging my feet and responding to this. So 2017 is when I did my last year as a missionary. And I knew leaving, like a friend even pointed it out as I was leaving focus and figuring out what the next step was. He's like, all of your students are bringing you mental health struggles because that's where God wants you to go next. Mm -hmm. Like making it really clear. And I did a year of psychology graduate school and then discerned out of realizing this might be better from outside that therapist role. It might be easier to approach this from outside the confines of that role ethically. But then, yeah, I tend to kind of run like Jonah and (laughs) like, no, same scared. (laughs) Don't want to do that. So it was about a year after I left focus where I was telling God like, okay, well, I can't start this because I don't have a name. And if you don't give me a name, I'm not going to start it. Mm -hmm. And I was on a retreat that weekend and 
the face of mercy just popped into my head. And as at um, John Paul II's shrine outside DC, I was like, okay, I don't even know what that means, or how that fits. But as I was diving in to John Paul II's writings about mercy, and this was shortly after Pope Francis had written about mercy as well. And there's just so many beautiful things about like mercy being the main characteristic of God, a God who reaches out to us. And that kind of synced up well with my own faith journey. So one of my favorite spiritual books is called I Believe in Love. And in it, it talks about mercy, meaning having a heart for the miserable. If you take the literal mm-hmm. Latin misericordiae, and that idea that Jesus's heart is most for those who are miserable and suffering and most for the parts of our lives, like the parts of our lives he wants to come into are the parts that are miserable and suffering because we all have that. And so that just really jumped out as I was looking of like, yeah, that's that's what we want to be a church that looks like. We want to be a church that looks like Christ in serving those who are suffering first. That's like our teaching of a preferential option for the poor. It's like, we don't just want to help the poor, but we want to make sure that they have the place of honor. And so that's really, I think, what the Face of Mercy captures. We want those who are struggling with mental illness to have that primary place of like, no, the church community is going to put your needs first to make your burden as light as possible. We realize it's already hard. And so how can we ease that so that you can encounter Christ and know him? Yeah. And so it's both this place, I think, of we each need to receive that face of mercy of Christ. And then what we want to be is that kind of mirror of him to others. Right. And, you know, the face of mercy does so much Good work. Like I've gone through your website and I follow you all on social media. So just as a quick aside, listeners, like the links will be in the episode description and the show notes. But what I found so profound is that there are so many resources. And, you know, I have to say, like over the course of the time that I've been following you, there have been just so many good posts and good reflections. But I also noticed, too, that there's always a lot of chatter that happens. And, and maybe that's just like the culture of social media. But I think it does point to the fact that this is still, even though, you know, here we are in 2021 and 2022, kind of like straddling two years, and we've made a lot of progress as a church, certainly. And I think your point about being that face of mercy to others, giving those who are suffering in whatever it might be, that place of honor and really easing their burden, I think is so important. But there still are some necessary steps that need to take place. There still needs to be a lot of kind of head to heart travel that needs to happen for a lot of folks. And I've been curious to know in terms of what you've seen, like what the response has been, and then maybe just like some of the things that have been challenges for you as you've been rolling this out. Yeah, I'm still surprised at some of the things that kind of have that outcry against them. So one of the first ones I remember was St. Maria Goretti's feast day. And I was seeing so many stories that kind of, I don't think it's intentional, but they kind of imply that she's a saint because she managed to fight off her attacker, Alessandro. And for those who have lived through sexual assault, that can be incredibly hard to hear if we aren't careful in how we frame that. Because she was a saint, not just, she was a saint because of her holiness of life and for the forgiveness that she had. And yes, she valued the virtue of chastity, but if she had been successfully attacked, it would not have made her any less holy. And that's often what's implied when the story is not carefully told. And the outcry, I made a post kind of correcting that. I was like, wait, but like, I'm not arguing her holiness. I'm not arguing, but that idea that people, I think they like the way it's been told. There's this kind of like comfort, not realizing how it might be heard by somebody who has been hurt or has experienced struggles. That is just kind of surprising. And, you know, and I never know which post it's going to be, which things kind of shake people up. Yeah. I think honestly, the hardest part has been trying to figure it out in a post-pandemic world because we started it right before the pandemic. So a lot of our 
initial plans of how to launch an organization involved going to events that haven't really happened since. So yeah, much more of it has been on this internet presence where you don't get to work with people face-to-face, which is always much preferred. And I think that's really how the work of the Face of Mercy is going to need to happen long-term is very much in communities and instructing people kind of in, yeah, in the place where they are. Yeah. And I'm appreciative of that specific example too. I mean, like having a particular strong devotion to St. Maria Goretti. And, you know, you're right in that there is a lot of care and mercy and real, I guess, like love and tenderness that needs to happen. Because as you noted earlier, like we all arrive at meeting God wherever we are. And he doesn't, like you said, he doesn't smite us just because we've gone astray or we've chosen to sin, even though the desire for him, for us, is to to be perfect, you know, as he is. But of course, being fallen human beings, we will never be, you know, quote unquote perfect. So we strive for that holiness, but it comes about in a variety of different ways. There are significant impacts if we don't frame things in a certain way. Absolutely. And so much of it, I think, is about the nuance of words. Showing care for those who are struggling doesn't mean changing what the church is teaching by any means. It's just making sure we express it with the right nuance and the right emphases so that people hear the message that really is already there. It's just making sure we're not putting anything in the way of Christ and his love, because that really is the heart of what our church is about. And it's interesting you mentioned that verse, because that's actually one of the Bible verses I've had the most anxiety with, is that one about be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So much of my anxiety has been wrapped up in perfectionism. And I read a reflection once where it talked about, if you're looking at the context of that verse, it's actually talking about God's love and mercy. Yes. It's saying to be perfectly loving and merciful as God is loving, where it's the same words, but just that idea of like, what what part of God's character are we emphasizing? And that at the heart, he is a God of love. A love that once are good. It's not like a soft, do whatever you want love, but this love that really cares and wants good and will meet us where we are. You know, it's the, the classic Catholic stereotype of Catholic guilt. It's interesting to have all of these worries around, like, again, not feeling we are worthy of love from our Lord. We're not holy enough. To contrast that with the face of mercy, the person who is love, died for our sins and will continue to, even if we were the only person on this earth. And this isn't so much a question, but would love to, you know, hear your reflection on Catholic guilt. I use that in air quotes. And just like how that may pose as a barrier for a lot of people when we talk about mental illness and mental health in the church. Absolutely. Because I think it gets conflated so much of this idea of like, if you're anxious as a Catholic, what is anxiety and what is Catholic guilt that we kind of accept as like a cultural norm? in church communities. I really love the work of Brene Brown. So she's a researcher who's talked a lot about guilt and shame. When she distinguished, it was the first time I had heard someone explain that like, there's something different about the emotion that helps you want to do better mm-hmm. versus the response that shuts you down of like, I am just bad. And so she labels those as guilt being the healthy emotion and shame being the one that just kind of shuts you down and says, I am bad. But when I had heard that, like, I think what we often conceptualize as Catholic guilt is really that shame for many people. There's this reaction of like, well, I'm never going to live up to that idea of perfection. I'm never going to be as holy as John Paul II. It becomes this like very discouraging, clearly more of the devil than of God kind of reaction of condemnation. Whereas that healthy idea of guilt where you've done something wrong and you just, you sincerely are like, oh, I didn't want to hurt that person. 
that wasn't what I wanted at all. It was just a bad moment. I made a wrong choice there. In most relationships, when that happens, you can go and repair it and you move forward. That's really what God wants for us with guilt is that idea that like our emotions are good. The capacity we have to have emotions is so good because they're all meant to draw us to Christ and to heaven. And so like our happiness here helps draw us to heaven. Our guilt here is supposed to do the same. And I think that's just so different from how that like cultural idea of Catholic guilt happens that comes about and is experienced. I, I know that feeling too well where it comes up and it's like, oh, <laughs> yep. I, I dread going to confession and that like feeling of ugh versus, oh, this is a good friend. I can go apologize. I can work on how this can be better. So our relationship can go back to what it was. And I'm so grateful that you mentioned confession because, you know, even many, many years down the line and, you know, being born and raised Catholic, there are some times where I still drag my feet out of, yeah, maybe it is shame or worry, anxiety, whatever it might be of going to confession and just feeling like, oh, here we are again. Of course, there's a certain amount of weight that needs to happen when it comes to like repairing any relationship, being able to have that remorse and that sincere contrite heart. But we forget that that's exactly what is happening in the confessional as well. And of course, to a greater degree, because it is God. But all the same, because he has this like beautiful gift of divine mercy, that's what he's inviting us into. So I just appreciate that you mentioned that there. It's definitely an area for myself. It's all there in my head. It's getting that to the heart. The anxiety still like rises when I go to confession. Oh, do I really want to? But that realization that it's there for a reason. Christ knew we would need confession. One, that like very tangible way of making that repair like we would with a friend. But also that like he, I think the realization that he doesn't expect us to be perfect already. The confession is there because he knew we would need it. He knew that's how we would get ready for heaven. He left room for that. That I think is really beautiful. Just something that has been kind of ping-ponging in my head just as we're having this conversation too is a verse or I guess like a section of St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians that I think a lot of listeners know that I'm a huge fan of. It's kind of followed me ever since I started the podcast and it's on the body of Christ. And I think, you know, Nicole, this whole conversation has really added new perspective to that because, and I'm thinking about those ladies, the little community Bible study that you had, each of them had their own struggles with mental mental illness or, or what have you. And just how, like you said, they had their own human virtue, but when faced with the broader Catholic community, maybe they weren't as welcomed as, as maybe they could have. And conversely, like the Catholic community maybe did not embrace them as well as they could have. And I'm thinking about St. Paul's verse there about, you know, when one part suffers, the whole body does with it. When we don't welcome and maybe we're not aware of it, it really does hurt us in an interesting way that might go unnoticed as well. I think because of that, I love highlighting with the face of mercy, the saints who live with mental illness, because I think that's an easy way to illustrate what the church would miss out on. We don't know what future saints are living among us, but we can look back and look at the saints who have been recognized by the church and go, oh, we could have missed St. Therese of Lisieux comes to mind. It's very likely she had a separation anxiety disorder and that because of that anxiety, she formed her little way. But that's the exact reason she grew close to Christ in such this unique way that she's now a doctor of the church. If we weren't ready to accept those with mental illness into our religious communities, then whoever the next St. Therese-like saint is wouldn't have that opportunity. And the mm -hmm. church would miss out on everything she has to offer. Or for those like St. Benedict, Joseph Labore had a more obvious mental illness and he couldn't join religious life, but he lived a holy life kind of as a vagrant. 
and it was known to the people around him and it's like the church remembers him so much later because of his holiness and like oh we're missing out on those saints who might be looked at as the oddballs in our parish or the ones who just will never quite fit in the way that they want to or their parish even wants them to but that they still have something to offer and as we're thinking about how we can be more available or more open and welcoming at least like for me like when i'm sharing advice with folks i think in this context number one is to check out the face of mercy you know anyone who is listening please if you're looking for different resources and just more information i would highly encourage again like there are links below but for yourself mccall like when you think about how we can be a more welcoming church and again a face of mercy to those who maybe on the fringes or the margins who may feel like they are unlovable or they're not holy enough because of whatever anxiety, depression, mental illness, you name it. How should we approach this? Like, what can we do better as a church? It's a great question. I think that there's this twofold because like what we can do as a church on the community level, I think there are so many things in the way that we talk about subjects that could be more open, like that attention to nuance that I was talking. On the individual level, I think some of it is being open with our own struggles. That's obviously like a discernment. Don't share everything with everyone. But that idea of if we don't portray this image of, I've heard it called performative piety, where it's like, okay, have it all together outwardly. There's room for our own like ups and downs. If there's room for our struggles, wherever they are, that actually makes room for the struggles of people around us. It makes it more possible for them to open up and for them to feel like, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one having a hard time at mass on Sunday. And then just little things, especially when you're at mass or at parish events, moving towards the middle of the pew so people can come in when they're coming late, you know, just making a point to like smile if you see someone who's struggling or just not drawing attention to it. Just little things where it's kind of like, okay, how can I show others that they're welcome here? I appreciate those like real tangible things that you can do, even something as simple as moving to the middle of a pew. I didn't even think about that. And that's precisely why we're having this conversation that I'm more. So again, thank you. And I think as we tie this all together, you know, you talk about the ways in which the spirit has moved through you and how you've encountered the face of mercy in a variety of different ways. And now again, like how you're sharing that with other people through this nonprofit. Obviously for me, when I look at you and I think about what we've talked about today, it's a huge marker of your own feminine genius but of course that's only like one part I'm sure there are so many diverse aspects but I'd love to hear your reflection on your personal feminine genius and how through this work through being Christ to other people how it is that you've seen your feminine genius flourish in your own life I think the biggest thing is that there's so much of my own trauma and anxiety that's kind of wrapped, was wrapped around like hiding myself from the world and kind of putting out that idea of what I thought other people wanted And the more that I accept my emotions and myself and my sensitivity and my limits, the more that I think that I've seen that flourishing of what I have to offer the world, that it's actually particularly in those very spots that I wanted to hide is what I have to offer, that my emotions and sensitivity are a gift. They're not a like liability. And that the more comfortable I am and then open with the people around me, the more I'm able to receive them and they're able to be open. And I can't count the number of times in a conversation where I've been open about my mental illness and my struggles related to it. And the other person's like me too. There's then that freedom for them to be that just comes from me being myself. I think that's something that's really shifted from my faith when I was younger to now as I've grown into this mission that God's calling me to has been the realization that like what I have to offer the church is not something that I'm doing so much as it is who I am, that it's me showing up is the gift that the church needs. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, us showing up every single time and yeah, and being a witness to that. So Nicole, thank you for being a witness of the face of mercy and, and for starting the face of mercy, saying yes to that. And I was wondering if you could lead us in a closing prayer. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for the gift of this day and this conversation. We thank you for your mercy that you have been showing us over and over again in this grand story that you're writing and then in each of our smaller stories within it. We thank you for every person who has helped us to to know your heart and your mercy, who has been that face of mercy towards us. And we just ask that that would penetrate our hearts in new depths, that we would know how deeply we are loved and be able to live that out and be little mirrors of your love and mercy in the world. And we ask this all through the intercession of Mary, Mother of Mercy. Amen. Nicole, thank you. Thank you. My thanks go to Nicole Amalu for joining me on the Feminine Genius Podcast. I greatly enjoyed our conversation because it's a topic that we need to keep talking about and it's so near and dear to my heart. So thanks again, Nicole. You can learn more about The Face of Mercy by visiting thefaceofmercy.org and by following them on Instagram at thefaceofmercy. I've left these in the episode description and the show notes. You can listen to the Feminine Genius Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many other platforms. And you can follow us on social media at FemGeniusPod. All of this information and the show notes can be found on our home on the web, FeminineGeniusPodcast.com. We'll talk to you soon, and God bless you always. <laughs>